All right. Um, is that uh, bearable? All right. I may have to hold it just a, a ways away. As I was sharing, <laughs> 10 years ago, experienced a birth on Father's Day. And ironically, I was performing a wedding when my wife went into labor. So that was pretty amazing. I literally recall standing at the altar with the bride and groom. And as I look out, I see my, my, my wife breathing like she's teaching a Lamaze class at a birthing center. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, this is not happening. And... Um, Braxton Hicks contractions, and after arriving at the hospital, we would soon discover that she was seven centimeters and gave birth just a couple hours after the ceremony. <laughs> so, it was absolute craziness, but here's something even more ironic. I just did a wedding yesterday, for real. So if I have any experiences of PTSD or flashbacks, <laughs> Victoria's already promised me that there's going to be no Lamaze-like breathing during the sermon, so it should be good. But it really was with Father's Day in mind that I wanted to preach a message that I originally shared as part of our recent HBC parenting class, and allow me to explain. We are living in unprecedented times. The voice of the world only continues to grow stronger, louder, and more negative against the essential biblical truths that are foundational to honoring Christ and the gospel. Traditional marriage between a man and a woman, the structure of the God-ordained family is getting attacked from multiple angles. If you affirm the biblical structure of the family, such as father's providing and protecting for their children, providing discipline and direction for the home, or mothers raising children and serving in the home as a full-time job, or calling children to be obedient to parents and getting disciplined when they don't, you will be accused of being a bigot, a social pariah, Pastor Adam mentioned deconstruction in his message last week. Not only are there attempts by false believers to deconstruct their faith, but there are also now attempts by the unbelieving world to deconstruct the very design that God has for the family. The attack and deterioration of the family could come as no surprise in a hostile and deliberately antichrist world. Listen to what Pastor John MacArthur shares. The family has God's first earthly intuition, or institution. It was God's first earthly institution. It's not being recorded now, so I can just... <laughs> Let's rewind and start all over. Before there was government, and long before God instituted the church, he ordained marriage and the family as the basic building block of society. The destruction of the family... We are witnessing today, I believe, is a harbinger of the ultimate collapse of our entire society. The more the family is threatened, the more society itself is in danger of extinction. We are living in the last days, and nothing shows that more graphically than the deterioration 
of the family. End quote. John MacArthur, 83 years old today. Happy Father's Day and happy birthday, John MacArthur. And he's seen a lot take place over the course of his lifetime. Would you agree? To begin our time, I believe that the Lord would be most honored if we took a brief moment to understand the biblical theology behind God's design for the family and both its impact and reflection to the church through its gospel witness. Building families is vital to the church because the church is fundamentally a spiritual family. A well-ordered family is a powerful, God-ordained, universal witness to, what the, to the church of what it ought to be. The Puritans often referred to as the family as a little church. This is a key theme of Paul's entire first epistle to Timothy. When he wrote, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. First Timothy 3. Paul then instructs young Timothy to use his experience in the family to show him and others how to treat the members of the congregation in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Where God's word says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul also tells Timothy that he should be able to recognize elders in the church using a similar method by looking for the good spiritual and earthly father figures. An elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect because if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5. The Holy Spirit led Paul to the Lord's case. Healthy family leadership must be one of the criteria of appointment for the position of the overseer because the very same skills and abilities are required for overseeing one's household as well as God's household. As Christians, we see this family dynamic cultivated in the church atmosphere as we spend time with one another and get to know one another more Intimately, our sense of being one family grows. We begin to treat one another in the way that God exhorts us. Testing, one, two, three. Okay, there we go. A little bit easier on the voice now, for sure. People in the church are no longer strangers, right? We get to know each other. We share our lives together. We build relationship with one another. And we grow in our intimacy. And our sense of being one family grows. We begin to treat one another the way that God's word exhorts us to. People can see the parallels. We, we recognize this. We um, we can see this and process this through the lens of our own experience. We can see the importance of the corporate witness to, uh, for the family to the church and for the church to the family. They really do feed off of each other. 
The family helps teach the church how its members are to relate to one another, to recognize leaders, and even to some extent what God is like. And the church teaches, the, uh, teaches some of these same things to the family. What is your view of families in the church? What purpose do they serve? Have you spent considerable time thinking about how God can use the witness of your family to the church and to the surrounding culture? Listen to how one pastor describes he says, have you noticed that the concept of the family is becoming more and more distinctly Christian? When we tell people the amazing news of, the, of a father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we could become his own adopted children, we'd like to assume they know on a human level about these basic types of relationships. But this assumption is becoming increasingly more difficult to make. Satan has always attacked the family. And at no time more than today, he wants to disintegrate and distort the family beyond recognition so that the gospel is as inaccessible to people as possible. And by all accounts, the enemy is having great success. Why do you think it is uh, so popular today to believe that men and women are interchangeable? It's because Satan wants to blur the gospel witness of both the church and the family. True marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. But Christ and the church are not interchangeable. So marriages where the man and woman are interchangeable speak falsely about Christ and the church. They confuse the gospel and Satan rejoices. All this demonstrates why strong parents and building families is a vital Christian ministry. It is vital to the church, which is our spiritual family, and it's vital to the world, which sees in the family a picture of the redeemed community. End quote. So how are we to respond and to maintain clear gospel testimonies against an increasingly hostile and antichrist culture attempting to destroy God's design for the family? Oh, we need wisdom, don't we? We need wisdom. And thus our journey through Proverbs is going to continue. In honor of our dads today, and because they are called to be wise spiritual leaders in the home, I made an acrostic with the word Father, and that should be in your handout. And these biblical commands and principles, however, don't just apply to dads, but they are exhortations for moms and children and every uh, family member to take to heart. And the wisdom in Proverbs provides plenty of ammunition as we consider their potency. I have titled the message, uh, God-fearing families are witness to the watching world. And we're going to look at six exhortations to godly families to maximize our witness to the watching world. Now let me just be honest with you. Each of these exhortations could be a sermon all by itself. So God was faithful to me. I prayed and asked what he wanted me ultimately to major on and focus upon. And these are the ex exhortations that I have for you. It's really a shotgun approach. And... Um, we want to hit the main points and maximize our witness. So the first exhortation is this. A godly family fears God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Pastor Curtis launched our series, and he actually preached on the fear of God. And I would be hard-pressed to even hold a candle 
to the excellent job that he did on that message. So if you did not hear that message, I want to encourage you to go back a couple weeks and, and to listen to it. And in Curtis's message, he said, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, you do not have wisdom. It's critical. It's essential. Foundational to our application of God's wisdom. God is the motive and the glory is the motivation as we fear him. Curtis also shared that a healthy fear of God is mindful of pleasing the Lord. There is a reverential subordination, I believe is how he phrased it. Our fear or our reverential subordination of God is reflected in the everyday decisions that we make. This is the practical wisdom that Proverbs offers to God-fearing families. How do I spend my time and who do I spend it with? What movies do I watch? God's wisdom has something to say about this. What websites do I visit? What music do I listen, listen to? God's wisdom has something to say about this. How long do I play video games or do other recreational activities? How long or how many times do I physically exercise each week? God's wisdom has something to say about this. What do I do in private when nobody else is around and only God is present? God's wisdom has something to say about this. And there's a direct correlation in Proverbs 9.10 between the fear of God and wisdom and the knowledge of his holiness. Just look at the end of the verse. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Or your translation might say gives insight. What gives us insight? Knowledge of the Holy One. Emphasis on our Sunday night series that won't be taking place tonight, but will continue next week. Just knowing God. Knowledge of the Holy One is key. Years ago, Ed Welch wrote a classic book called When People Are Big and God is Small, which is an excellent counseling resource. And in it, he talks a lot about the fear of God versus the fear of man. And his premise in the book is that when God is small and man is big, you will suffer from all different types of sinful anxieties, insecurities, worries, and fears. And the path out of anxiety and the fear of man, according to Welch, first, the knowledge of God. Second, the knowledge of ourselves. And third, the knowledge of others. Knowing God is key. And Proverbs 9.10 affirms this reality. Knowledge of the Holy One gives us insight. Welch goes on to explain, and he says, for every look that we take at man, we should take ten looks at Christ. That Christ must be bigger than the giants in the land. He then talks extensively about the holiness of God and God's supreme otherness. Why? Because a big view of God cultivates a high view of God. And that puts man right in his proper place. He goes on to talk about ourselves and how easy it is for us to get consumed with ourselves. Why am I so concerned about me? Why am I so egocentric versus theocentric? Scripture tells me exactly what I need. I need to pray that God would be exalted. 
Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, that God would be exalted. Not me or even other people. Wisdom of Scripture guides us because it gives us knowledge of the Holy One contrasted with the brokenness of man. Maybe you're here today and your feeling is one of guilt or shame. Or you feel dirty. Living in this world, stepping in the landmines of sin. You can feel the filth of your sin. Maybe something happened to you in your past. Maybe there was abuse that took place and you still feel the, the impact of that time. Christ invites you to come to him because he understands. When you feel contaminated by sin, God understands. The Holy One touches the heart and can cleanse a man or woman of all unrighteousness. And Jesus, did he not? He was so familiar with touching the contaminated people of his day, which was symbolic, right? And we saw this as we studied the Gospel of Mark. He, he, he touched unclean men and women. He, he interacted and, and touched the leper and helped the blind. So beautiful. But we must recognize that we're all spiritual lepers at heart. All of us. And when you come to Christ in response to the gospel, you are no longer identified by the guilt or shame of your perpetrator or even your own sinfulness. Christ can clothe you with a wedding garment and a royal robe of righteousness. You share in the faith of the Holy One who has touched you, who can heal you if you trust in Him alone for forgiveness. Don't walk out of here today carrying any more guilt and shame of your sin. Turn and trust in the Savior. Grab a hold of Him, His righteousness, and He will cleanse you. He will allow your heart to be born again and give you a new lease on life. Amen. Amen. On page 97 of Welch's book, he shares a, a, the, a fear of the Lord continuum diagram that I would like to show you. And um, we have it, I think, up to go up on the screen. There it is. And notice the progression of fear that Welch, uh, he mentions, dread, trembling, astonishment, awe. See that on that first line? And we can stop right there because we can look back even through the gospel accounts and we can notice that there were many people in the crowd, many unbelieving people who had terror and dread and trembling and astonishment and awe, right? Did they not? They did. But notice the transition. Notice the fear. I call these the believing fears. Reverence. Devotion. Trust. Worship. Edwalt says, no one is excluded from this fear continuum. Christians nor non-Christians. For Christians whose eyes who have been opened to God's great love, the fear is fading. And that is why 1 John 4.18 says, maturing love it says perfect love in some translations, but the better translation, maturing love casts out fear. He goes on for non-Christians. Such fear is ever-present, but this fear will not be camouflaged forever. The day is coming when everyone will bow before God in fear of the Lord. End quote. And notice that last line on the bottom right. We know of God's holy justice 
and holy love. God's holiness gives us understanding and it paves the way for his love to be seen in the wisdom that he provides. Believers and God-fearing families know of both God's holy justice and his holy love, which actually leads us and sets us up perfectly for the next exhortation in your outline because there's some overlap with these two points. We're looking at six exhortations to maximize our witness. A godly family fears God, and the letter A leads to our second exhortation. A godly family adores God. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. And you'll notice that it's in quotes. Wisdom is speaking here in this context. Wisdom loves and blesses those who love and seek her. Families can enjoy success in their different roles and responsibilities, in their relationships, both inside and outside of the home, in their relationship with Christ. All this is intended to be our witness to the watching world. The wisdom is the one being quoted here. One cannot help but see the connection to how Jesus loves and blesses those who seek him, mentioned in John 14 and Matthew 7. By nature's, we are fools and we would never seek him. Right? The fool would never seek him. But he draws us to himself, giving us a new desire for wisdom. Just as wisdom offers great treasure to those who seek her, so Jesus makes all who come to him spiritually rich And we know this at great cost to himself. And this serves as fuel for our love and adoration. A love driven by reverence, devotion, trust, and worship. This is adoration. This is how we love God in return. And how can we not, especially when we look at the pages of Scripture and we see all the verses of of his great love. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. As he speaks to Israel, there I have drawn you with loving kindness. 1 John 4.18, God's word says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected, is not matured in love. As believers, we no longer fear like unbelievers do. And we can still see this in the diagram that was up there. We see it at the end. We grow, we mature. Our love and adoration of God is our response to his great love for us that drives us towards that reverence, devotion, trust, and worship. So if you're curious as to whether you adore God, you could just turn these final four fear factors, almost a tongue twister there, final four fear factors, you could turn them into questions. You go ahead and ask yourself them in question form. Do I show reverence to God and his holiness in my life and mortify sin in my life? Or do I minimize or justify my sin? Do I show devotion to God in my life in the word, in prayer, and in his service? Or do I neglect my spiritual health and think that other people will go ahead and pick up, pick up the workload for Christ? Do I trust God with all the big decisions that I'm going to make in my life? Or do I have a low view of God and perhaps too big of a view of people? 
Do I worship God in my life? Or is my heart gripped with idols? You just turn it around in question form. And, and, and God, listen, he, he, when, when he saves us, he doesn't want us to go on living in unbelieving fears. He wants to grow us in reverence and devotion and trust and worship. That's where the maturity and that perfect love will cast out those fears and it will drive our adoration. It will drive our praise. Appreciate Ronald so much just even giving us that exhortation on why we sing. Now for those of you who are maturing and are thriving in Christ, praise God, he's growing you. But perhaps you're someone here today and you just feel like you're surviving. This is the beauty of the second exhortation in this entire sermon series. God's wisdom is right here waiting for you to take hold of it. Don't take another step without the Lord's wisdom. What did Proverbs 8.17 say again? I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. The Lord isn't trying to play a game of hide and seek with his wisdom. He's not. But he does desire that we would pursue it. And this was the emphasis of Pastor Adam's sermon last week when he talked about the plea and the, the, the pursuit and the payout of wisdom. We must pursue it. And it's so easy to preach after Curtis and Adam because all I got to do is mention their sermons for half my time and it's accounted for. All good stuff. If you want to be a God-fearing, God-glorifying family to the watching world, then we need God's wisdom to lead the way. Our third exhortation reflects the letter T in the word Father, and it's this. A godly family to the watching world thanks God. Proverbs 10.6 says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous. What a glorious truth. Or other translations say, A crown of blessing is on the head of the righteous. And notice where it is. It's, not, it's on our head. It's not at our feet. God wants, as, as, as it comes down and the blessings are upon us, he wants them to land here. He wants us to think about them. He wants us to meditate on those blessings, to dwell upon them. They come directly down from the Lord to the righteous. Or as James writes in 117, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And as beautiful and as glorious as that verse is, we cannot lose sight of the gospel context in which it's found in James chapter 1. The verse right before, and you can turn there in James 1 if you want to see it, the verse right before in verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And then verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And allow me to draw your attention to that hyphenated word, first fruits, in verse 18. This is a unique expression in the Greek. It can actually be translated converts, which is consistent with everything that Christ taught us in the Gospels. And Adam did a very good job of that in Mark's Gospel. And that is that a converted heart will bear fruit. It will. And we know that there's no greater gift or blessing than salvation, but what we lose sight of is this gift keeps on giving. 
The gift of righteousness allows us to bear fruit in our lives and give testimony of the fact that we're converted and we're changed, transformed because of Christ's work of righteousness wrought in our hearts of faith. And that enhances our understanding of Proverbs 10.6 when we read, blessings are upon the head of the righteous. Because we see that it is a fruit of the righteousness of faith granted to us in Christ. In the Old Testament, they only had the promise of Christ in faith. In the New Testament, we have the reality of Christ by faith. And so what does this have to do with being thankful? A brother of mine would say that was a long walk for a short drink of water. Yet the Lord wants us to see it. The additional blessings that he gives us in Christ are a testimony of our conversion so that we can be witnesses to the watching world. Or perhaps it can be simplified by saying a converted heart is a thankful heart. Amen? A righteous heart recognizes and thanks God regularly because you see and understand and think about your spiritual and material blessings and who they come from. Yes, I said material blessings too. I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. But we recognize the hand of God in both the spiritual riches that he provides and the earthly provisions that he makes for us. The key word connected to our thankfulness is our contentment. If we find contentment, it opens the door for thanking God. If we're discontent, it leads to being unthankful. How do we grow in contentment and thankfulness? The answer is right here in Proverbs 10.6. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, so count your blessings. Count your blessings. Think about that and dwell upon all the riches that you have in Christ. Think about his steadfast love and his faithfulness to provide you with everything you need. Those of you that have kids on summer break, you might experience this in your home the same way the cricks do in ours, that on occasion we have our kids come up and they say, I'm bored. There's nothing to do. If we're completely honest, that's like the last thing we want to hear because we have a million things we're trying to get done and we only dream of the day where we could look back and say, I'm bored again, right? Their problem isn't their boredom. It's their discontentment. And this is a great shepherding opportunity for us as parents. Most kids today are inundated with stuff. They are overwhelmed with the number of books that they, they can read. They're overwhelmed with movies and video games and bikes to ride and things to jump on and dozens upon dozens of things, right? And if we're, yeah, we, we see it. And what they're ultimately saying is that I no longer find satisfaction in those dozen upon dozens of things that the Lord has already provided me. That's the truth, isn't it? And the heart needs to be shepherded. But if we're completely transparent, our hearts can respond the same way, especially when we pursue so many things of this world that may not satisfy. So there's a lesson on contentment for both of us. And this is why the Lord calls us to remembrance so many times in his word. We all forget to count our blessings. And if not careful, discontentment will hijack our thankfulness to the Lord by having us focus on the few things that we don't have 
instead of the dozens upon dozens of blessings that we already possess. God-fearing families witness to the watching world when we thank God for all we have instead of grumbling about the things that we don't. And God's wisdom helps us to see this. And you want to know how important gratitude is to the Lord? A verse known by many, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, it's time for exhortation number four of the six to maximize our witness. A God-fearing family, God, godly family, fears God, adores God, thanks God. And fourthly, a godly family is humbled by the gospel. Proverbs 16.6 says it this way. you got to see this proverb. I know some of you may have been tracking and turning in your Bibles, but this is, this is my new favorite proverb. It says this, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. I know I've read this proverb many times before, but there was something special about seeing it in the, the gospel context as I thought about the acrostic and us being humbled by the gospel. It was just an absolute perfect fit. And under our last exhortation, we emphasize that our righteousness is from the Lord and it's given to us by faith. It's not a self-righteousness that we can earn or merit. It's not a righteousness that any other human being can give us. It's a holy perfection of righteousness that can only be given to us or imputed and credited or credited from the Lord himself. And this proverb helps us to see this. This is the ultimate truth expressed in love. It says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. I want to walk you through this verse. Loving kindness in the Hebrew is a word hesed. And it reflects God's covenantal love. It can be translated mercy, grace, goodness, kindness, loyalty, or even unfailing or steadfast love. And as you can see, it's a, it's a loaded term, rich with theology. The next word we see in the verse is truth. It reflects the veracity and truthfulness of who God is. The one who cannot lie. The one who always keeps his promises. Next, we get the word iniquity, which means sin, wickedness, guilt, or punishment for the guilty. And this reflects the depravity of mankind, which every person is a member of. Welcome to the club, in case you didn't know. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the last word is atoned, which means covered, over, pacify, make propitiation for, or as we see in our verse today, atoned for. So putting it all together in the fuller translation, this is what Proverbs 16.6 says. By his mercy, grace, goodness, kindness, loyal, unfailing, steadfast love, and perfect truth, our sin, wickedness, guilt, punishment of the guilty is pacified, covered over, and atoned for. And all God's people said amen. And welcome to your new favorite proverb in Proverbs. And that's, it's amazing. And it should be very humbling every time believers reflect on the gospel. But the problems start when we lose sight of Christ's righteousness and mistakenly think that his righteousness at work in our hearts is something we get to take credit for. That somehow we can be holy apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. This leads to the pride of man 
And the only thing worse is the spiritual pride of believers because it stands antithetically opposed to the gospel. Spiritual pride leads to self-righteousness and can tempt us to take credit for something that God is ultimately responsible for. And thus the Lord wants us to continually be humbled by the gospel. Because you know what will happen if we not? Not only will we grow in self-righteousness, we'll start to gossip. We'll start to slander. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Got fired from his job. Hear about so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I heard he got a DUI. Oh, did you know that so-and-so? She had an abortion once. Oh, did you know that they had an affair? Isn't that just terrible? No. Not in God's eyes. It's no worse than your, the sins of our own heart and your own offenses as you look with hate and disdain at other people, God equates that as murder in the heart. As you look out at somebody in lust, God equates that with adultery of the heart already. We cannot and should not judge others. And we know this. If not for the grace of God, God their sin could just as easily be our sin. That's the reality. So how do we prevent spiritual pride and continue to be humbled in the gospel? We practice it in our homes and in our relationships will remind us of our own sinfulness. And if we spend more time looking at our own sin, then you will spend less time focusing on the sin of others. So just a few questions, and these were some of the ones that I asked in our parenting class. How often do you and your spouse confess your sin and ask each other for forgiveness? What does regular gospel maintenance look like in your marriage or for those single in your close personal relationships? Parents, how do you and your spouse ask your children for their forgiveness when you sin against them when it's age appropriate? Are there any other current family relationships suffering from disunity? If so, how might the gospel humbly be applied to your situations? Are you committed and willing to make the gospel a central and focused priority in your home? This is how we continue to be humbled by it. Amen? I always love talking to mature saints. I just love it. And there's nobody that has reminded me more about being a sinner saved by grace than you, Jerry Turner. And Dwight Stone Sr., thankful for those brothers because they remind me all the time, just a sinner saved by grace. And how did that happen? Because when you walk with the Lord, Jerry, right, you mature, you recognize who you are and the reality of all that he is, and it's humbling. And the same true, I want the same to be true of my own heart and life as those men. And I know you do too. Well, we have two quick exhortations left. Number five, which is the letter E. A godly family to the watching world exhorts God's word. Proverbs 6.20 shares, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Anyone familiar with the book of Proverbs 
sees these appeals on a regular basis. Listen, my son, my son, listen, listen, my son, my son. It's like a skipping record through the book. And they serve as purposed exhortations to appeal to a child to listen to God's wisdom and instruction. And the beauty of this proverb is that it actually reflects the partnership between both parents as they work together to exhort God's word in the home. What does this look like practically? Well, we don't need to go very far. We had a wonderful opening scripture reading that reminded us what we need to do. But the verses that follow in verses 21 and 22 do the same for us. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you wake, they will talk with you. It's God's word. It will abide with us. This is as practical as it gets. The command to bind the teachings to the neck means they are vital to the young man's survival. And the father's teachings are personified as a guide, guardian, and companion. Whether he's waking or lying down, whether he's just waking up, God's wisdom will be waiting to protect and preserve him if he abides in God's word and wisdom. God's word travels well, doesn't it? And it, it will follow you wherever you go. And his wisdom can travel with you wherever you go, no matter what situation that you're faced with. It can protect you. We must exhort our own hearts and the hearts of our family members with it so we can be a witness to the watching world. And before we move on to our final exhortation, a quick word about the context of these Proverbs, if you haven't noticed already. This is wisdom being offered in the context of adultery and sexual deviance. Adultery is merely one form of sexual sin. We know that there's countless other ways that sexual sin takes place. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality. They're all forms. But in this context... Is dealing with sexual deviance in the form of adultery. And God's wisdom warns us of the path of destruction in which sexual sin leads. And our job is to exhort God's word. Not just by standing in opposition to the culture, but to show them with hearts of compassion the beauty, peace, and life-giving joy that comes from honoring the king's wisdom. That's where life is. And I cannot think of a more appropriate response as our nation encourages the celebration of Gay Pride Month during this month nationally. But I would also caution you not just to think about homosexual sin, but to think about the prevalence of the sins of all of society in that arena. Because the remedy is the same. It is we need to be compassionate, yet also exhort God's word, and his word and the truth of the gospel should be what we use and what confronts their hearts as we pray for their repentance. After all, we know the inerrant, infallible word of God given to us by the omniscient, omnipresent, omnisapient Lord of all creation has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So let's use God's word to exhort each other in our homes and to the watching world. Well, you made it. Our mic stayed on too, which is amazing. 
We're, we're, we're doing so well right now, but it's time to land the plane. We have arrived to our last exhortation. And like the others, it's an all-encompassing truth to live by. Number six, letter R. A godly family repents to God. Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Did you know that the opposite of fearing the Lord is to be wise in your own eyes? Those who fear God are humble. They realize that their own reasoning is plagued with sin. You and I have been wrong before, and guess what? You and I will be wrong again. And therefore, be eager to gain wisdom from God so that you and I, we, we won't fall. Without guidance, people fall. His victory and wisdom in a multitude of counselors. It's true. Modern education is failing because it encourages students to be wise in their own eyes. It excludes God, who is the source of all truth, and teaches students to look solely to man for knowledge. And our entire world is built on that structure. And many religious people are also wise in their own eyes. Certain scholars and so-called experts standing in judgment over God's word, criticizing and correcting Holy Scripture, some even making provision, provisions for man's sinful and self-serving choices. The one who truly fears the Lord will turn away from evil. The God-fearing family realizes that because the Lord is the just, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise governor of the universe, no one ever benefits from going against his ways. You just won't. The proud have no fear of God and therefore continuously engage in all kinds of sin, and they think that they can fight God and win. True wisdom, however, is always conscious of God and is repulsed by evil. Not merely because of the fear of the consequences, but also because of the conviction that God's ways are the ways of great blessing. In fact, if you look at the next verse, verse 8, what's it say? It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. It will bless you. It will bless you so much. Perhaps you wondered where this acrostic derived from. And it was a result of some personal time that I spent with the Lord as I asked him what kind of father he wanted me to be. And as I thought about the word father, just kept meditating and thinking about it. And I need something that I can have in my memory, something that I can take with me, something that I can pray through. And this was a fruit that was born out of that time. So much so that if you go and ask my son Liam, what Father stands for, he, he might just surprise you. He might just surprise you. I want to be a man who fears God. I want to be a man who adores God. I want to be a man who thanks God and has contentment with what he's already provided, not the things that I don't have. I want to be a man humbled by the gospel. I want to be a man that exhorts others in my own heart with God's word. And I want to be a man who repents to God. Because I know I don't do all those things perfectly, nor will I ever. 
nor will I ever, and no person will. But all the Lord asks of us is that we would continue to fight the good fight of faith through his sanctifying work to mature us into God-fearing families. And the reason that he does that is because it matters. It matters so that we can be witnesses to the watching world, and it matters because it will allow us in our lives to give him great glory. Amen? Amen. Happy Father's Day. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we bow our heads and hearts and look to the one perfect Father and the only one that has ever existed in the history of mankind, we rejoice in the truths of your word. And I thank you that we can look to it and continue to glean all the wisdom that we can possibly bring out from the book of Proverbs. I thank you for the previous two messages and now for this third one. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to just help us, address our hearts. We're all in different areas as we reflect on even the questions that were asked during the sermon. I don't know what was going through people's mind, but I know that you know. And that you're a gracious God who wants to help us and mature us. And you don't expect perfection. In fact, you knew that we could never achieve that. And that's why you sent your son to live the perfect life. So that we could trust in him and his righteousness. We pray, Father, that you would allow us today to celebrate you as Father. And also to take your wisdom, which you provided in your word, to help us be spiritually earthly fathers, whether we have children biologically of our own or not. In the church family, we saw a picture that all of us, to some degree, will serve as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in our discipleship community of the church. Help us to be God-fearing families. Help us to be a God-fearing church. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.